Longest Day is a podcast from a female-founded destination practice that believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. We are an organization unafraid of crisis, but have never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to the crisis in the first place, there's always something we can learn. I'm Leah, the founder and CEO of Broadstairs Consulting, a problem-solving consultancy offering crisis and governance advisory services to help leaders and organizations thrive and flourish. We operate in the gap between legal and public relations, at the coalface of difficult situations, believing that most crises are avoidable and the impact of inevitable ones usually can be mitigated. Our guests have overcome a litany of crises. Many of our guests have worked with us in some capacity in the past. All of them have stories worth hearing. We trust them to make this worth your while. We hope it helps you trust us. Samuel Kasumu is an award-winning social entrepreneur, commentator, and strategist. He served as special advisor to former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, where he held the Civil Society and Communities Brief. His work included leading on the cross-government vaccine deployment confidence program. He was the most senior black advisor in government. He has extensive senior leadership and board experience, acting as non-executive director at challenger energy firm Ovo's Foundation Arm. And under former Prime Minister Theresa May, he was a member of the Race Disparity Audit Advisory Board. Most recently, Samuel announced his bid to contest the London mayor. He is the CEO of Inclusive Boards and a member of Forum. He is also the author of The Power of the Outsider, a hotter publication that will be released on the 22nd of June, 2023. Well, Samuel, it's great to have you on The Longest Day. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Perhaps you might like to describe your longest day. My longest day uh, would be probably be uh, the day that the news broke that I was considering leaving number 10 Downing Street. Were you expecting the news to be announced in the way that it was? No. Um, So typically when you leave Downing Street, you're, especially as a special advisor, you're you're probably, uh, you probably should leave in a way that is relatively quiet and not newsworthy. Um, and so the challenge for me was that my resignation letter had reached uh, one of the most important journalists in the United Kingdom. And she felt like there was a public interest in her uh, making it a story. Now, you've written a book called The Power of the Outsider. And in that, you talk a lot about the events leading up to and the uh, immediate aftermath of your longest day. What was it that made this day particularly challenging for you? When you're a special advisor, with the exception of um, very high-profile advisors like Dominic Cummings, uh, Lee Kane, etc., typically you're told that you shouldn't be the story. Um, you can get on with your job uh, relatively unknown or unnoticed. Um, and so, you know, I, it was very normalized for me to go into Downing Street and not feel like I was somebody that journalists needed to necessarily write about. And so going from uh, working in a very intense environment, focused on the job to becoming the story was was probably uh, what was a an interesting challenge. I mean, I had journalists outside my home. Um, I had my phone blowing up, not just uh, 
uh, with journalists keen to get their first interview. And of course, as a special advisor, you're not supposed to be doing interviews. Um, uh, but also people who had read about um, what had happened in the news, uh, people who didn't know I worked in Downing Street because I, it wasn't something that I was broadcasting everywhere. I just wanted to do the job. I didn't want to be the story. I didn't want people to feel like um, uh, somehow I was going to leverage off my time at Downing Street to become a celebrity whilst I was in the building anyway. Um, and so, yeah, it, it made for a very interesting period. Well, let's zoom out uh, a little bit. And perhaps it might be helpful if you could explain why you decided to resign, because I know that there are a lot of people who tried to convince you to stay. Yes. Um, so uh, whilst I was in Downing Street um, and, and during that period, I think my conclusion at the time was it was I needed to leave because there were some things that were happening that I didn't necessarily agree with. Um, and uh, I didn't really feel completely comfortable with the direction of travel. Um, and, and as as many people have seen since, uh, some of the things that concerned me have, uh, have now become uh, public knowledge. Uh, so I thought at the time that, that was probably the only reason. But then when I left Downing Street, uh, I had a chance to reflect on my experiences as somebody who was in many respects an outsider within the building. Um, uh, and, and so over an 18-month period, uh, I did a really thorough investigation to what it really means to be an outsider. And I tried to play back um, the things I was hearing to my own personal experiences. And then I, I, I've kind of concluded that it was more than just uh, a discontent with the direction of travel. There was probably a lot more things happening inside of me that I needed to work through. This is something that you go into quite a lot of detail about in your book. And one of the things that I thought was quite admirable um, was as you've just mentioned, not being about ego, so being willing to just focus on getting the job done, to ruffle feathers if that's what needed to happen to mm -hmm. be able to achieve a specific end. How was that kind of approach to change received by the people around you? Well, Downing Street is a, it's large and small at the same time. And so it's, uh, it's large in the sense that there was so much power in it, very big figures um, often, uh, in the building, but it was also a relatively small building for for what it represents. You know, less than two hundred people, maybe about one hundred and fifty, um, and of of which maybe thirty or forty are special advisors who are basically tasked with helping the prime minister to run the whole country. And so, if you're going to really make an impact, there's just no time to be timid. <laughs> you've got to be aggressive. You've got to be direct. Um, you've got to uh, talk in very short prose. <laughs> you've got to be someone that is willing. To to you know, ruffle feathers. Even if you don't do that, you you can get lost very quickly, and your value diminishes. Um, and I had to learn that um, very very quickly when I entered Downing Street. So in my first week or two, I spent you know trying to find ways, trying to figure out how to stop being lost in the building, um, but also trying to observe my surroundings. And then I'd see these public school boys who uh, you know, um, often. Um, not as experienced as me, but very, very confident and very able to make sure that they push themselves forward into cast lists. And if they didn't like anything, they'd be very clear about that. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to survive here and if I'm going to earn the respect of my peers here, um, I'm going to have to learn really quickly that, you know, you know, being moderate and, and, and kind, well, kind is fine, but being moderate and, and being humble in, in many respects wasn't necessarily always going to work in that kind of environment. 
Um, and this is probably why it's probably not the most inclusive place to work because there's a lot of testosterone in the building um, at the best of times. And so, yeah, I had to learn very quickly and that I had to be bold and confident and direct, etc. We're going to come back to inclusion in a minute, but um, I'm really interested because one of the themes that comes out from your book in the Understanding Ourselves chapter is the importance of having a facilitator. So in many ways, what you've just said is, um, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to to move things forward. When did you first realize that you were not flourishing yourself? So when I was in Downing Street, I don't think I ever felt like I wasn't flourishing. And I think that former colleagues regardless of what they may think of me personally, uh, would never conclude that I, I I didn't make a significant impact in Downing Street. So my value was very clear. I was very different um, uh, and I brought something unique to the, to, to the building. Um, I never really reflected on my experiences until I left, to be honest. <laughs> and it's only when I left that I was like, actually, there were moments when you should have maybe paused and tried to uh, work out what you were experiencing and not just moving from one thing to the other, which is very challenging in a place like Downing Street because there is always something happening. Somebody is always doing something stupid. A journalist is always finding out that something is about to happen. And there's always a a need to reflect on whether you take a a certain policy position um, and how that might land and which stakeholders you have to manage. And so there wasn't really much time for reflection. Um, and, and, and that's not unique to me. I think most people that work in and around that building will tell you that, uh, or who have worked that will tell you that all the reflection usually comes after, which is why you have to be very prepared before you arrive in that building. You need to have a really clear uh, set of objectives. Or if you're a prime minister, or if you're working for a prime minister, because once you go in, there's going to be so many people pulling you in all sorts of directions. Um, and there won't be much time for you to regroup and say, okay, well, this is where I want to go. Um, yeah. So I didn't really feel that way until until I had a chance to think about it. One of the other things that you write about is that relentless pace. And you were obviously advising in a pandemic. Um, Mm. There were a huge number of additional factors. Um, But one of the things that leaps off the page is that you're not a stranger to adversity. So for you to say that your longest day was the day that you found out that you were the subject of a public interest campaign, if we can call it that. Um, What enabled you to get through that day? Um, That is a good question. Uh, I think probably at the time what was going through my mind was, uh, well, two things. One is, well, you're experienced enough enough to know that you have to make some good decisions here. So decision number one was, well, you're not going to give an interview because special advisors don't give interviews. And so, and if you do give an interview, people are going to feel like you are a disgruntled staff member, et cetera. And at the moment, public opinion is probably on your side. So there's no, there's not really a need for you to comment here. <laughs> um, even though some of my colleagues would have preferred me to find a way to, I know, pull water over the story or whatever, but it was just, you know, do, do, do the wise thing here. Um, so you can live to fight another day. And then the second thing was linked to that, you know, this too shall pass. It was very clear to me that, you know, I'd seen enough to know that uh, I was not going to be the new story forever. 
Um, uh, and so, you know, recognizing that though it was a very long day, it wasn't going to last forever. And so my decisions had to be wise and, and, I, and, I, and I would have to think long term. And, and actually, in a strange way, uh, that, long, that, that longest day lasted 18 months because I chose not to respond directly to the situation until I've, I'd had enough time to do it on my terms. Hence why we have uh, the book being published uh, next week. One of the things that really upsets me about the events that led up to your resignation that I learned about from reading your book was that conversation where you had an opportunity to speak to former Prime Minister Boris Johnson to, I don't want to say justify your resignation, but to explain why you were leaving mm. and the presence of an insider dramatically changed your ability to communicate what was on your heart, what you would have said mm. had that insider not been present. What was it in yourself that made you feel like you couldn't be real mm. about your experiences in Downing Street and why you were leaving? Uh, that's a good question. I think partly it was a lack of relationship with... Uh, the then chief of staff, so the prime minister, but also, um, well, linked to that is was a lack of trust of what how that would have been used, and so if I had a direct conversation with the prime minister, I know that he would have, you know, number one, which he did do anyway, try and find a way for me to stay, um, and we probably would have agreed on some parameters for the environment to be more conducive for somebody like me to get on with what was a very important job. Um, whereas with with Dan, there was a feeling that he would use this, um, not necessarily just against me, but he would probably use it for his advantage because he had many enemies in the building. And so on balance, I couldn't trust that the conversation uh, would be used in a way that was helpful for for for, for me or the prime minister, and and so then on ba on balance, I chose to to stay quiet. Does that make sense? It it does. Uh, but the peculiar thing is that there are a lot of people that you do trust. So I'd be really interested to know how have you worked out who you can trust. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as saying no, a lot of people I trust. <laughs> um, but um, the people that I do trust, it's based on relationship, based on them showing their their fruits. Their, um, not just necessarily with me and not, not just necessarily close up, but also through things that I've observed. And so sometimes I could trust people that I've met on a day, one day, just because the conversation demonstrates an openness, a heart that is relatively pure. Relatively, because no, no, no one's heart is completely pure. And other times it's because they've helped me along the way. And other times it's because I can see that we have this uh, a shared shared set of objectives. And so I don't think it's a one size fits all, but I don't think I trust that many people. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, there's a scripture I always, I always, say to people is like the the heart of man is desperately wicked who can know it and so you know we're, we're, we're always going to let people down because none of us are perfect but there are enough people in the world that I feel have um I guess 
an element of purity around what they are hoping to achieve. Unfortunately, in politics, there are many people who are just there because it's something to do. It's uh, it's an occupation. It's uh, it's a network. It's an environment that you know they feel like they have maybe a right or a desire to be a part of, and and so the objectives are not necessarily as pure as 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 one would like, which doesn't help. We'll continue the interview after a short ad. It's hard not to feel disillusioned by the fashion industry. To get that piece you want, you either have to compromise your budget, compromise the product quality, or compromise your ethics. But we believe there's a better way. Positive Retail brings you secondhand designer fashion that offers more than just a new fit. Our goal is to categorically change customer perceptions of resale and provide joy, protect the planet and create community. Find us in stores in Margate, Ramsgate and Deal and online at positive-retail.com. That was Anna, founder of Positive Retail. Thank you. Let's get back to the interview. Fast forwarding to 2023. Mm. You've been in the limelight again. Yeah. (laughs) First of all, what was it that caused you to put yourself forward for Mm. the London mayoral race? So whilst I was writing this book, a few things came to mind. The first was, uh, it's very apparent, particularly after speaking to Saida, that a period of modernization will return for the Conservative Party because some of the groups that... uh, are less likely to give the party a chance are also the growing groups. So yes, even if we shut the borders today, we will have more uh, people from minority ethnic backgrounds in our country. Uh, You know, mixed race folks are amongst the fastest growing groups. If you're from a minority ethnic background, you're you're more likely bluntly to have children and a third of primary school kids right now are from a minority ethnic group. So uh, we have a growing minority ethnic uh, population. We have more graduates because of uh, Tony Blair's uh, radical policy changes. You know, n- nearly half of the population go to university. Um, and 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 the thing about those two groups is they are, uh, uh, I guess, not just highly concentrated in urban centres, but they're also moving out. So marginal seats are becoming more difficult to hold and and some safe seats are becoming marginal. So, you know, you don't need to be a super forecaster to know that for the Conservative Party to remain relevant, it's going to have to find uh, a platform to to run on that can appeal to those groups. Um, uh, So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was I, I felt like, as I wrote the book, that I wanted to demonstrate a lot of the things that I was talking about uh, and 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 do it in a way that gave a voice to people who feel like outsiders. So if you can't afford to live where you are, uh, where you grow up, then then essentially then you've been made an outsider in in your hometown. Um, uh, so housing was a big thing, but also if if there are subjects that you're so passionate about, but you know it, it's not fashionable for you to talk about those things, then you might also feel like an outsider. So I wanted to really give a platform to some of the things that uh, I felt needed to be spoken about spoken about and i knew that you know taking that route was always going to be slightly risky not everybody was going to uh be a fan of somebody that was being relatively countercultural, challenging orthodoxy telling you know the prime minister that his housing policy was basically crap and stuff that was never going to win me friends in, uh, in high places but i felt like actually this was the biggest platform to show people that you know uh there is there is a 
there is a lot that needs to be spoken about. How do you feel? Can I just say also, and I thought I could win. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought that you could win, um, but I'm probably not supposed to say that. <laughs> How did your longest day equip you with no longer being in that mayoral race? So I suppose one, as some people would know, what happened was... Uh, I was not put on the long list to be interviewed. And so essentially members were not given the right to choose or reject me as a candidate. And there were many reasons for that, which I suppose we're not going to go into today. But um, what I was told at the 11th hour, I was told when I was campaigning in Westminster, it was a, it was a Saturday, uh, it was late morning and I just delivered, leaflets to a bunch of flats and I was with my running mate and I got the emails and no one called me I got an email saying you haven't made the the long list for the interviews tomorrow and everybody was expecting me to be at these interviews on the Sunday and and actually the chair of the board saw me that morning and said well sorry I haven't been in touch but this is what the interview is going to look like even though she knew that they had somehow managed to take me off it and so it was a, it was a, it was a total shock so I, I remember I, had to, I, I just sat down on the floor for about five minutes to gather my thoughts and then I remembered what my objectives were and I said, well, okay, well, you're going to manage this in a way that people might not like, but you're going to, you're going to just make sure that you, you, you stay true to your mission, which is to, to expose the fact that actually outsiders are not always given the opportunity to flourish, right? And so everybody said, no, Sam, just keep your head down. Don't say anything. You're going to get a safe seat, et cetera. And I said, no, that's not, that's not why I'm in involved in politics. This is not why I'm here. Um, this is not that my mission is not just to climb the greasy pole. So I'm going to manage this in a way that you might not like, <laughs> but it's going to be true to myself. And so uh, I suppose, you know, how did my longest day support that experience? Um, I just knew that I had to, I'd been through enough over the last 18 months, starting with that longest day to, to know that I have a mission and I, I shouldn't deviate from it. And I also, I'm never going to ask for permission. It's just not my, it's just not how I function. I'm going to, I'm going to ask for forgiveness if I need to, but I'm not going to ask for permission. Nobody, nobody should feel like they have the power to stop me from doing the things that I want to do. And I don't need the position to do it. I really don't. And so, yeah, I just, you know, threw my toys out the pram in an orderly manner. <laughs> uh, and then, and then now I'm just continuing on with you know, the mission. And your mission isn't limited to politics by any means. Your commitment to seeing outsiders flourish very much underpins your day job. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about inclusive boards? Yeah, so I'm co-founder of a, an executive search firm, and and uh, the mission essentially is to support outsiders to uh, be able to uh, be in rooms that traditionally they are, uh, uh, I guess, underrepresented within, uh, but also equip them with the skills for them to flourish once they arrive in those moments. And so, um, you know, the core business is putting people on boards, um, but we do a hell of a lot of work around developing leaders, um, building networks for leaders to support themselves, um, and also publishing data that exposes, um, uh, I guess, the state of certain sectors. Because um, I mean, very often you, what you find is People don't know how bad things are because nobody is is articulating it in a way that is data driven. And sometimes we might say, well, you know, X sector is 
you know, not very inclusive, but until you see it in black and white, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's just a subject of, of discussion. So we published data, for example, for the charity sector, who is still less diverse uh, at board and senior leadership teams than uh, the FTSE 100. And before we published that data, nobody knew that. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of our work is multifaceted, um, but the mission is the same. We want to create environments for outsiders to flourish, um, and we and we want to do all that we can to make sure that outsiders come into the room because of all the good things that outsiders bring, uh, which the book hopefully um, helps to articulate. The book, The Power of the Outsider. Apparently, I'm supposed to put that into every sentence during the me- all the media and podcasts that I do, but, you know, haven't been doing that lately. But, yeah. That's really wonderful. I have one final question for you. Um, we at Broadstairs Consulting are incredibly passionate about food. Mm. And so... What I would like to know is if you had to choose any food to fuel your longest day, if you had to live it again, what would that food be? Oh, that is such a good question. I wish you asked me that in advance. Um, I'd probably keep it simple and just have a cheeky Nando's. <laughs> that's probably what I would do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I did on the day, but that's probably what it would be. Samuel, thank you so much for joining us on The Longest Day. I so enjoyed reading The Power of the Outsider, which is out next week. And um, I've really enjoyed the chapter, particularly on neurodiversity, which is absolutely worth a read. Um, But I hope that it does really well. I'm really excited for all these super secret things that you have up next. (laughs) So uh, maybe we'll have to have you again on the podcast in coming years. Great. Thanks for having me. listening to a Broadstairs Consulting Limited podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Tune in soon to hear the next installment of The Longest Day. Copyright 2023. Production copyright. Broadstairs Consulting Limited. All rights reserved.